Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Uh, as you grab your seat, go ahead and grab your Bibles as well. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a black one right around you somewhere. Uh, and again, that's always our gift to you if you don't have one. Uh, but we're going to be in the book of Acts um, today, and we are starting our new series in the book of Acts. Um, but I do have several points that I want to make um, regarding this series and what it's going to look like for us um, before we actually jump into the verse-by-verse uh, walking through the book of Acts. And so if you were coming today excited that we were going to be jumping into an expositional verse-by-verse study, um, that starts next week. And so um, you will be let down and frustrated today. Um, but anyways, the, the points that I want to make um, to kind of start out of the gate with with this series is, is primarily the reason why we, we are going to be walking through Acts um, over the next um, probably year. Uh, so with that, the first thing is this sermon series in the book of Acts is, is really just me wanting to be obedient to the Lord and preaching and proclaiming His Word and how His Word then shapes and molds a people within a community to then be able to engage those around them with the truth of the gospel. Um, and that's, that's what we see throughout the entire book of Acts is God creating a people, a community of believers who then take the truth of the word, what God has provided for us, and then interact with and engage those around them from all different ages, from all different backgrounds, from all different socioeconomic statuses, from all different ethnic backgrounds. Um, it's creating a people that actually reflects and, and shows the glory of the gospel. And when we say the glory of the gospel and reflects the image of the gospel, what we're really saying there is um, what Revelation uh, gives us a picture of in the end when we're with God in eternity and when we're worshiping with him in heaven. Um, it's, it's everybody from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every background. Um, it's, it's, there's no, there are differences among us as far as cultural differences and ethnic differences. Um, however, the one thing that we have in common is that we are in Christ and in him alone and that we have found him to be our greatest treasure and we have found him to be our greatest satisfaction. And so, um, that's, that's what this series primarily out of the gate is going to serve us in doing is not only transforming our hearts and seeing what the gospel produces in us as individuals, but also how that gospel shapes each one of us as a part of a community of faith, the church, and then how that church then engages its community around them. So that's the first thing that we're going to um, be talking through. Um, and, and, kind of what this is going to do. When we first started this church about 16 months ago, um, here when we launched it in August of 2016, <laughs> I'm trying to remember the date there, August 2016, we started out with the book of Ephesians, and we walked through the book of Ephesians. And, and what that served for us to do was to kind of look at, this is, this is what the church is. And so the, the first three chapters were, this is what God has provided, and this is what God has done, and how he has created a people, and then from there it moved into kind of the role and responsibility of the church. And so it was very much a kind of vision casting weekly. This is who God is, this is how he shaped us, and this is how our response to that is. Um, and that's going to be very similar throughout this series. Every single Sunday, in a lot of ways, you're going to feel like this is vision casting for 
who God is, what he's doing within our hearts with the gospel, how he's constantly changing us to become more and more like Jesus, and then from there how that then shapes us in the mission of God as we um, go out from this church um, to the community around us. Um, So again, refocusing us on what God would lead us in regard to what he wants us to do. The second thing to consider in this series um, is that there will be weeks where we have just huge chunks of passages that we're also going to be looking at. And so this isn't going to be like every week we cover one verse, Um, but rather there might be themes that are covered in large chunks of passages uh, where we're going to be looking at those themes. And now, um, again, one of the themes that we're going to constantly be tracing through the book of Acts is the movement of the gospel. How is the gospel moving when it affects a people, when it affects a group, when it affects a city, when it affects a community? What is it doing? How is it shaping? And how is it transforming and and, and sending them out and commissioning them out? Um, So if we were to come to a passage of scripture where within that passage or within that main theme, within our 35 minutes that we have together this morning, if there's two kind of things that we're looking at, one being, and I'm just throwing out some examples here. I don't have one particularly in mind, but if one's like diversity within community and the other one is tongues of fire, well, the one that's going to be most pertinent to our church today is diversity within community, not necessarily tongues of fire. And so if you're one of those charismatic background people and you're like, no, we need to cover tongues of fire. Um, what we're going to be doing throughout this series as well is if there are other um, um, studies or doctrines within these chunks of passages that we're going to be looking at, we're going to be rolling out resources that week, articles, blogs, um, even book um, reviews, book options for you to be able to have resources to those specific topics. Um, and so, so be looking for those. We'll have those on our resource Um, tab that's on our website. You're like, we have a resource tab on our website? Yes, we do. We also have a website um, for those that (laughs) aren't familiar with that as well, thedistrict.church. We try to make it as simple as possible for you, Um, so just add a decimal point in there. Um, Decimal point, is that right? A period. You know, it is what it is. Um, So anyways, with that being said, um, the third thing that I want us to talk about is that the the book of Acts is a narrative, all right? It is a story that is being told. Um, throughout the, the Bible, there are different types of genres of books. There are um, genres of, of wisdom literatures. There are epistles um, that are instructions written to churches. And then there are also books that are historical books um, that are basically saying this is what God did and this is how he was operating, this is how he was working. The book of Acts is a historical book that is tracing the history of the church, literally the Acts of the Apostles um, from the first century up to about 65, 70 A.D. And so this is watching the gospel move um, for the span of about 30 or 40 years from Jesus' um, death up until the death of the Apostle Paul. And so as we're reading through this, one of the things that's a big debate amongst churches when reading through historical literatures and historical books of the Bible is um, kind of the debate between is this prescriptive or is this just descriptive? And what I mean by that is whenever we read something that's prescriptive, like preach the word, that is prescribing to us something that we should do in our day and age now that they were also doing back then. 
There are other things that would be more descriptive that would say this is how God operated in first century, but within the context and culture today, it might look different. And so we don't necessarily do it exactly the same way that it was done then. Um, case in point, one of the first examples for someone that would be like, no, 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 like we... Anything that's in the Bible, we should prescribe to ourselves today and operate in that exact same way. And I would say, well, you'll see in two weeks at the end of chapter one, um, there is the replacing of Judas as one of the apostles. And when Judas was replaced, they cast lots in order for him to be replaced. And so if we were to say that's fully prescriptive, then that means anytime we go about looking for a new missional group leader, we need to cast lots in order for God to determine who the man or woman is that's going to help lead that group in order for us to make a decision accurately. And so, for example, we're looking for a missional group leader to take over Jeremy's role on Monday night and create a group for our Monday nights right now. And I'm not trying to compare Jeremy to Judas here um, as far as as far as him him leaving um but anyways we're we're, we're needing someone to to fulfill that role and so we're, we're not going to get together as a leadership and be like all right let's who's got the lots and like let's put people together and then cast the lots and figure it out now there's there's a different process in which we go about today figuring out who's going to come into leadership and, and how are they going to be affirmed and appointed and, and prayed over and so forth. And so, so that's the idea of something that would be descriptive of the first century and the way things operated, but not necessarily prescriptive for us today. And so you'll see a lot of those things um, throughout the book of Acts. And if you have the question, how do I know when something is prescriptive or descriptive, I'm glad you asked. We will be rolling out a resource for you this week, um, an article that's being able to kind of walk you through how to kind of discern when you're reading through the scriptures whether or not this is something that is prescriptive for me today that I should do and honor and walk in, or is this just something descriptive in a way that God moved and operated in first century um, as well. So, any questions on that? Just as I'm kind of walking through this, I wanted feedback in case you wanted to give it. Um, okay. With that being said, I want to go ahead and read the first eight verses of Acts. And so if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. Acts chapter 1. I want to read the first eight verses. Now, I'm not going to walk through these um, verses as far as expositionally, but we're going to be doing that next week when we look at the first 11 verses. Um, but I do want to read them so that you can see the major theme for the book of Acts. Picking up in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 
Um, verse 8 is going to be a verse that we constantly keep coming back to as we walk through the book of Acts because it is literally seeing the fulfillment of this kind of thesis that, that Luke, who is the writer of this book, is putting together for Theophilus, who he is writing this for. Um, and what he's ultimately saying here is what I'm writing to you is I'm going to be tracing for you the gospel movement by the witnesses, by the disciples of Jesus, the followers of Christ. I'm going to be writing out for you that entire movement of how God spread and worked the gospel into the communities of Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so we actually get to see all four of those ideas, um, those regions walked out and, and worked out throughout the book of Acts. And so a lot of times people will say like, well, okay, book of Acts is kind of working with Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, but literally as far as they are considering here, they would consider the end of the earth, including Gentiles, as well as con it's, um, including ultimately where Paul's trying to get to, which is Rome. Um, Rome is kind of the climax of, of Paul working towards his missionary journeys to get there because to him, if he can get to Rome, he can get to the world because Rome was the capital of the Roman Empire at this time. Um, and so that was kind of for him the strategic way in which he was going to get the gospel to then be able to spread to any and every possible region was because everybody was coming to Rome. And so we'll actually walk through that entire fulfillment of Jerusalem, Judea, um, Samaria, and the end of the earth. The first 12, 13 chapters are going to be primarily Jerusalem, and then from chapters 13 and on are going to be hitting Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Um, and so what I want to finish up the time here today with um, is, is really just walking through a timeline um, for each one of us to see what is, what is our role why, why the district church studying the book of Acts in order to have um, a mission here, in order to have a vision here for the gospel to spread? Why, why include that within our study? Why not just have, um, why not just create a church in which we just focus on one another and just focus on um, kind of creating a, a sub-Christian culture or a sub-Christian group in which we, we don't necessarily engage the world around us or we engage those in mission around us. Why, why do this? Why focus on this? And what I want to show you in this timeline is that this gospel movement, this gospel mission that God has ordained and established and created is way bigger than just us as the district church. But not only is it way bigger than us as a church, but it is also an invitation for us as a church to step into and become a part of. And that's one of the things that, that gets me so excited about the movement that God is doing is because he sees a people in Indianapolis that he wants to impact, that he wants to change their lives, that he wants to provide himself as their greatest satisfaction that they will ever get to receive that they're not receiving right now because they're pursuing other things. They are, they are replacing God with God's stuff and the only way that they're going to be able to see God for who he is is by the gospel getting to them, by the message being proclaimed to them, and by them having the opportunity to receive and accept it and, and, and trust and follow Jesus. But there's a way in which God designs that. There's a way in which he gets us to be able to do that within our community. And so I, wanted, I want you to see the bigger picture of this as we walk through it. So here's the timeline. And just follow along with me. I know it's going to be bullet points up on the screen as well. 
In Jerusalem, AD 30, Jesus died on the cross, resurrected on the third day, and then ascended into heaven. Fifty days after Jesus' resurrection, the Holy Spirit fell on the apostles, giving them power, purpose, and a plan. And out of joy, the church was born. Powered by the Spirit, Peter gave his first sermon, and 3,000 people's hearts were transformed. Hearing, receiving, and repenting, the young church walked in unity and garnered praise. Peter and John then continued to spread the gospel through preaching and miracles, and the church grew by 5,000. In AD 31, Stephen gave a powerful sermon, and the enraged crowd stoned him, making him the first Christian martyr. Around AD 34, on the road to Damascus, the Lord transformed the heart of Saul, a man who persecuted countless Christians, and Saul became Paul. In AD 44, King Herod Agrippa I executed the apostle James and had Peter arrested, but an angel rescued Peter, leading him out of the prison. As the believers were scattered because of this persecution, the center of operations for Christianity turned from Jerusalem to Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas were sent out on their first missionary journey. We'll see that in Acts chapter 13. On his final missionary journey, Paul traveled through Galatia, Phrygia, and Ephesus, encouraging the disciples in the cities. He then spent three months in Greece before traveling to Jerusalem, where he was then arrested. Paul's then sent to Rome for trial, but the ship wrecked on the island of Malta. When he finally arrived in Rome, he lived there for two years before Nero ordered his beheading. After 28 chapters, the story of Acts came to an end, yet the story of the gospel didn't stop there. Out of joy, the church was multiplying. In AD 80, uh, <laughs> that's hard to say, um, AD 80, uh, Christianity spread further to the countries of France and Tunisia. Twenty years later, the first Christians were reported in Algeria and Sri Lanka. By AD 150, the gospel reached Portugal and Morocco. Christianity found its way to Austria in AD 174, followed by Switzerland, uh, Switzerland and Belgium. In AD 328, the gospel reached Ethiopia. That's also around the time that the gospel uh, became legalized in the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire actually at that time was 51% now Christian um, by AD 325. Almost 200 years later, Pope Gregory I sent Augustine of Canterbury and a team of missionaries to present-day England, and within the first year, they baptized 10,000 people. In AD 635, the first Christian missionaries arrived in China. In AD 740, Irish monks brought the gospel to Iceland. In AD 900, missionaries reached the country of Norway, and out of joy, the church was still multiplying. By 1200, the Bible was available in 22 languages. In 1491, missionaries arrived in the African Congo with the first church located in Angola. A few, few years later, Kenya reported its first known Christians. Meanwhile, in Spain, Pope Alexander VI wanted to send Catholic missions to the New World. As a result, Christopher Columbus took priests with him on his second journey to the Americas. In 1531, right around the time of the Protestant Reformation, Franciscan Juan de Padilla, uh, started his mission work in Mexico City. In 1609, following the Protestant Reformation, the first Baptist church was founded in Amsterdam by John Smith. In 1639, Roger Williams, in coming to the New World, established the first Baptist church in Providence, Rhode Island. The early 1700s saw the Great Awakening in America, where both George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards stirred revival throughout the colonies. 
1845, the National Baptist Convention um, or network split, forming the Northern Baptist Convention and the Southern Baptist Convention due to regional and social disagreements. Among the Southern Baptist Convention, which was formed in Augusta, Georgia in 1845, um, they continued to send missionaries out to the farming communities in the South. In 1910, a tobacco farmer and church planter, like that's my kind of guy right there, um, tobacco farmer and church planter gathered a group of seven believers in the township of White House, Tennessee. The church planter funded by the Southern Baptist Convention purchased a sawmill and some land and had people donate logs in order to build a place of worship for the town. In 1912, I'm not like about to buy a sawmill, so don't get worried about that. In 1912, the first Baptist church of White House was launched and 25 people attended for worship. The church has been historically known for mission engagement and sound biblical teaching. In 1979, First Baptist bought 12 acres of land at the corner of Seed Tick Road. I can't make that up. Like, that's legit. Um, Seed Tick Road and Highway 31W, where they built a church that could seat 400 people. In January 2002, my family joins First Baptist Church, and we all get baptized together on January 26, 2002, some 16 years ago, last weekend. In that time, I came on staff at First Baptist as the pastor of youth, small groups, and discipleship for seven years. In 2013, First Baptist Church then sent us out to plant Desire Church in Miami, Florida, where I served on staff for two years as a teaching pastor. In the fall of 2013, we met South Floridian local Josh Gonzalez, who you'll see here in a second. Um, and then Josh became part of Desire Church as well. In 2015, God called my wife and I to, and Josh as well, to move to Indianapolis to begin planting the district church. And in August 2016, the district church is launched. That's a lot, all right? That's a, that's a long timeline. But the thing that I'm wanting you to see here is, is that there should be, God willing, Lord willing, a long history of gospel movement that follows us. Like at the end of the day, it's not the district church being planted that is going to be the, the failure or success of, of us as a people of God. But what's going to be the success of us as a people of God is whether or not our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren and that the community of Indianapolis 150, 250 years from now is able to look back and say we can trace the gospel spread and the gospel multiplication because of these bodies of, of faith, these people, these churches in Indianapolis who were willing to step outside of their own comfort zones, willing to step outside of their own networks and their own neighborhoods, even really just their own homes in order to engage those who are outside in order to engage those who look different than you, who talk different than you. I mean, literally, I can think of just within our cul-de-sac. We're the only white people within our cul-de-sac. If we're going to be missionally engaging in our cul-de-sac, means I'm going to have to step outside of the comfort zone of, of southern white house Tennessee, um, and yes, at one point I did work on a tobacco farm and there aren't any of those around here. Um, but like that's my culture that I'm used to. And so I have to be able to expand and, and, and stretch myself and what I'm comfortable with in order for the gospel to engage the community that I'm within. 
And so that looks like me pursuing Jeff, who's on the corner, Richard, who lives next to him, Bill, who's next to him, Valerie, who's next to them, Ifgani and Vicky, who live next door to us and their children as well, Richard and Aisha, who are on the other side of us. This is us engaging them and inviting them into our house in order for us to get to know them get to know their hearts, get to know their lives, get to know their stories, to be able to say, hey, I hear your story, here's our story, here's where we've lived at times, here's, here's the hope that we've placed um, in at times that, that did not satisfy us. I mean, literally, what we've learned just over the last couple of weeks is that we have neighbors who, yes, are Jewish, that moved from Israel, who are originally Russians. Um, but then at the same time, we also have um, our other couples who, who have come over to our house several times um, that we've learned are now Jehovah's Witnesses. And so we're starting to walk in and have conversations about those things that are typically uncomfortable for us. Because usually what we're used to in a Southern culture is someone attends a church and, and their kind of um, background is, yeah, I grew up in church, but just kind of didn't see an importance for it. I know a lot of scripture. Um, I know a lot of the right things to say. I, you know, I've got all the pens from all my perfect attendance in Sunday school, um, but it just really never came to life for me or my parents burnt me out on it. And so, so that's just kind of where I'm at with it. And it's like those, those kind of people, although are difficult to reach in some ways because they have the knowledge but not the heart, um, still is just a simple conversation to have where it's like, well, maybe you were trusting in Sunday school rather than trusting in Christ. Like, have you ever actually met Jesus? Have you ever actually like, like interacted with him and abide in him rather than trying to abide in, in your work in Christianity? And so like those are easier conversations to have than someone who, who's walking in Jehovah's Witness or walking in, in Judaism even. And so those are conversations that stretch us. And so what, the reason I bring that up is because every single one of us, as we'll see in Acts, are placed where we're at specifically for a reason and a purpose. And not only are you placed there for your own flourishing in your walk with Christ, but you're also placed in that, that, that neighborhood or that house or that apartment complex to be able to open yourself up and avail yourself for God to be able to use you to share the gospel with your neighbor, to be able to engage with that person, to be able to offer them a hope and a satisfaction that they're not going to find in anything else that this world has to offer. And one of the big things, and, and I know tomorrow night we have our vision night, and so I'm not going to try to take um, any... I'm not going to try to rob anything from that night. But one of the big things that we're going to be talking about is soul care and shepherding and what that looks like for our people, like healthy people multiply. Well, also within that idea of soul care is this idea that if we don't engage outside of ourselves and engage those who, who aren't in the gospel, we miss out on a point of soul care. If we're not expressing to others what God is doing in us, then we're stinting ourselves. We're, we're, we're literally, or we're blocking ourselves from being able to experience a greater sense of joy and peace that comes from God when we share it with others. And you've heard me talk about that a lot of times. Like when you when you eat a good food or you go to a good restaurant, you become an evangelist for that restaurant, right? Like you you go and tell you've got to go and have the fish tacos at this restaurant at Monon uh, or at Fire by the Monon down in Broad Ripple great fish tacos. I'm evangelizing it right now to you, all right? 
and I'm trying to get off the steak thing. I know I always talk about steak. But anyways, um, great fish tacos, fire by the Monon, go. Um, but anyways, that's, that's me. Like if I were to eat that and experience that and never share that with someone else, like I miss out on the joy of being able to express that. And to share that. You see a good movie, you go and tell people about that. Well, a couple of weeks ago, my wife and I went to see The Greatest Showman. And so then we were like, we wanted to go see The Greatest Showman again. And so let's bring in a couple of people to be able to go watch The Greatest Showman. I wanted, I wanted other people to experience this movie that was so captivating for me. And that movie actually has a theme of Ecclesiastes through the movie where having too little is not enough and having too much is not enough. And so watch the movie in light of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's, it's a great allegory for that. Again, I'm evangelizing the movie. But it's because it's something that impacted me and inspired me. And so as we're focusing on soul care this year, we want you to grow in your relationship with Christ. As you're growing in that relationship with Christ, part of the things that's going to help you increase your joy and, and increase the, the, the intimacy that you have with Christ and the expression that you get to receive from Christ is going to be you sharing Christ with others, engaging others with his message and mission and just the fact that he is the best thing that this world has ever seen and experienced. I love what Paul always says when he looks at the world around him. He looks at his heritage. He looks at his inheritance. He looks at his education. He looks at all the things that he has that someone would look at and say, this is the most successful person that's ever lived. And he would look at those things and say, I consider them rubbish in comparison to knowing Jesus alone. And so for him, Jesus is the greatest thing this world has ever experienced. And he wants his, his hearers to experience this same Christ that he has experienced. James 4, 13 through 15 says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist, or, or it can also be translated a vapor, that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. It's cold outside right now, and so you should be able to, to see an illustration of this idea of your life being a, vista or a, a, a mist or a vapor um, is when you breathe, like just when you breathe, like you see it and it's gone. Like scripture is saying, like that's what, like in the, in the span of history of eternity, like I always like to think 50,000 years from now, 50,000 years from now, what I'm going to be doing and participating in then, this 70 some odd years that I'm going to experience here on earth, is literally like me walking outside, breathing out, and just seeing it disappear. Now that sounds kind of morbid and like depressing, but the reality is, is, is we have a very short moment in, this, in the, the expanse of history, we have a very short moment in which we are participating with God in the mission that he is accomplishing. And so the question for us is, and this was actually an exercise I did with our staff several, several months ago, was I, I took them to a cemetery, which was weird because they didn't know that I was taking them there. Um, but I took them to a cemetery and, and I asked them, I said, I want you to go around and I want you to find a headstone of somebody that's the same age you are right now. 
And what I want you to do there is I want you to read Martin Luther's, um, or Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. He had 71 resolutions that he, that he actually read every single week um, in order for him, like, I resolve to be this in the image of Christ. I resolve to read my Bible in this certain amount of time, or I resolve to share, God, uh, share Christ with others. I resolve to love my wife. I res- like he had 71 resolutions that he walked through every single week because he understood that he had a limited amount of time in this world, and he wanted to maximize his capacity in order to get the gospel to not only change and transform him and to not only change and transform his home, but to change and transform his neighborhood, his networks, and his nations. And so my question for us is, what do we want our little dash to look like? What do we want that little dash between our birth date and our death date? (laughs) What do we want that dash to represent? What will great-grandchildren be saying? What will people, like, let's say you start a business and, and you run that business and then you hand that business off and it passes down. What would 150 years from now someone be saying of the founder of that business? What kind of man or woman were they? What's that dash going to represent when it comes to us trusting Christ and seeing him interact in, within our lives in such a way that we are joyful people that find happiness in him? And I'm going to say happiness because at the same time, I think a lot of times we, we focus so much on an unwavering joy, and that is right and biblical, but we rob ourselves as if we can't be happy as well. Now, I know I can walk outside and a bird can drop something on me and my happiness is going to go out the window. But what I'm saying is I can still interact in such a way that that I'm a delightful person because Christ is sufficient for me, because Christ is providing for me all the love that I long for in this life. That frees me to not expect my wife, Kelsey, to love me with a greater amount of love that she's not able to be able to actually provide for me. It allows for my children to be able to fail and me not um, sell them off or get rid of them because, because they failed. Because my, I'm sufficient in Christ alone. And so when we are a people that find Christ as our ultimate treasure, it then frees us to be able to live a life in such a way that God is glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And that's John Piper for those that don't know. So as we walk through Acts, My prayer for us is that we would walk through it in such a way that we're reading it throughout the week. Like you're gonna, we're gonna shoot out when you get the email each week, you're gonna see the chapter, the verses that we're gonna be in. I want you to read through those. I would love for you to study the background and context and culture of those verses each week so that when we come into this place, um, hopefully you already know what I'm gonna say. But that it's, it's allowing you to be able to see the word of God do what it did in a people 2,000 years ago and that that would build your expectation of what he is wanting to accomplish in us today.
That's my hope. That's my prayer for Acts. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. And God, I, I know that this, this message was not one that was um, deep by any means. Um, but Lord, it doesn't always have to be. Father, there can be times where we can just sit and look at just a major theme of what you're accomplishing in this world. And God, what you're wanting to accomplish is the, the delight of us as children of you to see you as our greatest treasure. And so, God, I pray that, that for each one of us, I pray that we see that daily. That Jesus would be made so much of in our hearts and in our minds that we don't turn to lesser things hoping that they would satisfy, but that we would turn to you every single day knowing that you are the only one who will satisfy us. And God, when we when we keep experiencing and, and feeling the expression of your love towards us and the satisfaction that you provide for us, God, my prayer is that that would also then free us to be able to turn our attention to others, both in our church as well as outside of our church, to be able to see them and to be able to see the need that they have, the need that they have for you, and to be able to offer them, to build a relationship with them, to be able to share the news of your son, Jesus Christ. So God, would you, as we walk through this book, via your Holy Spirit, would you, would you change us? Would you continue to conform us more and more to your son, Jesus? Would you transfer us from one degree of glory to the next? So that when we come on the, on the backside of this book, that we would be a people who we can look back on even within a year and say, man, God is good and glorious because he has, he has shaped me in, in ways that I never thought I would be shaped in. God, provide a, a boldness for our people. Break down the barriers and the walls that, that we put up um, in order to think that we're creating some type of comfort. God, we just, we pray. We pray that Jesus would be magnified. We want, if, if we do not want Jesus to be known in this city and in this community, then we need to cease to be a church. So God, let that be our, our anthem every single day is to see Jesus be made much of, for him to increase and for us to decrease. And God, I pray that your word would stir up that affection within our hearts and within our minds and let that be our greatest desire. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at